Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would feed us this day, that you would nourish our souls and mend our hearts and speak hope into us where we lack it and courage into us where we lack it. Holy Spirit, come and speak, for we are listening. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the resurrected Christ, do we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, everyone. Good morning. Morning. How we doing? That good? Okay. (laughs) Uh, It is the final Sunday of Lent. Um, Next week is Palm Sunday, that great threshold into Holy Week. And I do want to give a little plug here if I can for Holy Week, so I'm going to do that. That's one of the benefits of being in the pulpit. You get to, it's not really a bully pulpit, but you know what I mean. I'm going to take advantage of and talk about Holy Week just for a second. Holy Week is the most crucial week in the entire church calendar. So let me encourage you to do a couple things, okay? One, plan for it. So, Pastor Joel, are you saying I should plan my week around Holy Week? Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be a fantastic idea. Uh, plan for it. Please be on time, okay? Please be on time. So Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're here, 10 o'clock, normal time, uh, Good Friday and um, Monday, Thursday, 7 p.m. at St. Giles EPC. And you'll, you'll see the info for that in your bulletin. So one, plan for it, and please be on time, okay? Um, two, invite others to come with you. Invite others to come with you. We're going to journey closely with Jesus. It's a very missional week in a sense. So invite others alongside as we closely journey with Jesus, okay? Okay, off soapbox. Okay. Uh, Let me give a little recap, since it's our last Sunday in Lent, just about some Lenten themes. Uh, Lent focuses on shedding the old man, the old woman, living into the new, living into being new creations in Christ, pardon me. It involves emptying our hands, releasing sin, releasing brokenness, so that God can fill our hands with the right things. It's not just giving up and giving up, giving up. God wants to fill you with something, okay? It's denying the flesh actively in order to live in the power of the Spirit. So this is the work of repentance that we've been focusing on during this season. And it's the kind of spiritual house cleaning we've been tasked with during this Lenten season. And we'll continue that work with Paul as our guide. So we're going to make our way through Philippians 3, 4 through 14. So if you want to flip there in your Bibles with me, you can follow along. Philippians 3, 4 through 14. Uh, Picking up in the middle of verse 4, this is Paul speaking, of course. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul is giving us the resume from his old life, okay? His point, he was a devout true, full-blooded Jew of Jews. You couldn't get more devout and Jewish than Paul. And he lists out these seven virtues of his old life, four by heredity, three are by his own choosing. And you can almost see him like counting on his fingers as he's going through these. So the four hereditary ones. Okay, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which was in accordance with the law. I'm an Israelite, okay? I'm not a convert, okay? Uh, Of the tribe of Benjamin, a small but esteemed tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents, all right? He's probably spoke the the sacred mother tongues of Hebrew and Aramaic, okay? Those are four things. Let's keep going. He's got three more. 
These are by choice. One, a Pharisee, devoted to the law, devoted to the Torah. Okay? In terms of zeal, well, I persecuted the early church. Great zeal, none greater. And as for righteousness under the law, last one, no fault and blameless. Okay? Now, he's using the measures of his past life. He used to think he was blameless. If you read Paul enough, he knows that's not the case. But by the measure of his old life, blameless. Now, there is evidence that some rabbis actually thought this was even possible by the strictest observance of the law. You could, in fact, be blameless and be faultless before God. So by that standard, which is key, Paul qualified or thought he did. So in other words, he's saying, this is who I used to be. Okay, This is my former life, the things I used to value, the things I used to esteem, the things I used to put my faith in, the things I built my life upon, frankly. And this is, and I say this very carefully, this is faith in the flesh. This is faith in the flesh. And it begs the question, I think, one of the questions it begs for me, how would you describe your old life before Jesus found you? Does meeting Jesus redefine how you see the before and after of your conversion? It did for Paul. I mean, he began to reassess everything. So what Paul's talking about is what we boast about and what we trust in. And then in this context, he was addressing the Judaizers at Philippi who were demanding circumcision of those who had come to faith. They were putting their faith and their focus in the wrong place. Faith in the flesh, Paul thought. Paul exhorts them, don't return to the old ways. Jesus came. That changed so very much. So from now on, live a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. Put no faith in the flesh. Don't continue to live under the law. Instead, be defined by the cross. Now, well, let me highlight something. I really think what Paul's getting at here, this is a question of identity. What defines us? What defines us? Is it the old man, the old woman, the former life before we met Jesus? Or is it being a new creation in Christ Jesus? What defines us? And that's something that will come up again and again in this passage, and we'll deal with that as it comes. Moving on to seven. Uh, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now remember, Jesus found Paul on the road to Damascus when he was Saul, right? Knocks him silly off his horse, blinds him, speaks to him. Uh, Lord, Lord, who is this? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. <laughs> uh, and he converts Paul. So Paul had to reassess everything after his conversion. And he does. If you watch us as we walk through verses 7 through 11, it's sort of his reassessment process. He allows Jesus to totally reframe and redefine his identity and his life. And in that process, Christ became everything to Paul, to the point that he's willing to collect all his former privileges verses 5 and 6, and to weigh them against knowing Jesus. And he says he writes that off as a loss. Now, Paul is using the language of commerce here, gains and losses. That's a rabbinic concept. Jesus used it. You might remember this from Matthew 16, Mark 8. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his what? Soul. Right. Again, gains, losses. Paul is examining, if you want to think of it this way, he's looking at the balance sheet of his life. Paul's looking at the balance sheet of his life, how he used to value, estimate, and assess things. But now Jesus has come in and turned, he's rearranged the balance sheet. <laughs> he's made it all topsy-turvy, changed his past, his present, his future. Profound. Moving on to eight. Indeed, or some translations say, what is more? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's a great theme verse for Lent, don't you think? 
the fantastic Lenten verse. When he says, indeed, what is more, this is a really uh, a forceful and emphatic phrase. It's calling what Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily. It's, in other words, it's saying, this is really important. Listen to this. He's making an important announcement here. My old way of life, the Hebrew amongst Hebrews, is a loss compared to knowing Jesus. And now I view everything, past, present, future, in my life as a loss when compared to knowing Jesus. It doesn't matter what's on the other side of the balance sheet. Jesus is always worth more. So given that, Paul has a very scandalous freedom, doesn't he? He can let everything go. He can put the whole of his life in Jesus' hands, his life before and after Damascus. Jesus now defines his past, his present, and his future. How worthy is Jesus to Paul? How much does he mean to Paul? Well, basically says, to gain Christ, I would gladly give up everything. To have Jesus on the balance sheet of my life, in other words. Jesus is worth so much to me that my rather impressive, and he does have an impressive, remarkable resume, that my rather impressive, remarkable resume, my past, now looks like, translation there is garbage. Now, if I told you the modern English equivalent for that word, you'd probably fire me, so I'm not going to. But the Greek word is skubalon, and it means street filth or dung, okay? It is a vulgar term. It's a harsh, hard word. It means excrement. So think of the contrast here, okay? Anything that takes the rightful place of Jesus for Paul is not just like, well, that's unprofitable, or that's a little unhealthy, or that's not a good idea. He says it's dung and it's excrement. This is a lordship issue for Paul. And to be found in him, this is verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from comes through faith in Christ, pardon me, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love this, to be found in him. Do you hear the divine initiative there? To have a God-given righteousness rather than a self-procured self-righteousness that you hear in verse 6. This is why Paul's so confident, okay? This is the great reversal, to be found in him. Through Jesus, we have become, the scriptures say, the righteousness of God, not of our own doing. <laughs> Jesus' righteousness covers over our sin. That's, we saw that picture last week in the parable of the prodigal son, the father dressing his younger son uh, in shoes and a ring and a robe. This is an identity thing that shows he belongs in the father's house. He belongs. He was lost. But now he's found. So I think Paul is clearly dipping into Romans here, speaking about our positional reality with God under the law. We were dead in our trespasses, but now we're alive in Christ because we have been found by him. Now, God finding us, I'm going to say this probably twice because I think it's important. God finding us, God rescuing us is always more miraculous than us realizing he's looking for us. God finding us and rescuing us is always more important and more miraculous than realizing he's looking for us. By the time Paul realizes that Jesus is pursuing him, guess what? In God's mind, that's kind of a foregone conclusion, okay? God knew he would convert Paul before the foundations of the world. So our yes to God matters when I accepted Jesus and things like that. They do matter, but what matters more is that I was lost. Now I'm found. This is the way and the rhythm of grace. I've been made righteous by the merits of Jesus. I found that as I've grown older, I, I speak of my conversion as a second or third grader differently than I used to. 
in the kind of parlance of how I grew up in the time and era I grew up in, it was I accepted Jesus into my heart. You guys heard that before? Or I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, right? You've all heard that. I don't speak of it that way anymore. It doesn't mean that's not true to a degree, but what I say is when God found me, when God rescued me, because it puts the onus, I feel like, in the right place, okay? And this theme of imputed, i.e. righteousness, i.e. something given as a gift to us, gives way beautifully to that of knowing Christ. There's a relationship there. This righteousness gives way to knowing Jesus, and that's the bridge that carries us into verses 10 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I love that. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ relationally is the aim of everything for Paul. You get the sense when you really read him, this intimate, direct relationship to have fellowship with Jesus. To quote one author, Paul is thus taken up the Old Testament theme of knowing God, and he's applied it to Christ. It means to know him as child and parent know each other, or wife and husband, knowledge based on personal experience and intimate relationship, and thus to know Christ's character intimately. To know God as Jesus knows him as Abba. This is that intimate, direct relationship with Jesus, to know what it's like to, to fellowship with him and to commune with him. Knowing Christ is everything to Paul. And to know him is to know the power of his resurrection, as we read, and also to participate in his, what? Sufferings, yes. After death, we know that resurrection follows. The implication is that in him we die to the old nature and we rise to newness of life. When we baptize someone, that's part of the symbolism. If you think of someone going down into the water, that's going down into the grave, going down to the old man or the old woman, And when they come up out of the water, that's raised up to new life in Jesus, raised up from the grave. That's the symbolism in baptism. But resurrection involves, as you just answered, very rightfully so, suffering. Resurrection involves suffering in the way of the cross. Knowing Christ involves sharing in his sufferings, fellowshipping in his sufferings. Now, if you spend your time and energy avoiding pain and suffering, which is impossible, Uh, you're going to miss out on something so very sacred. Jesus suffered. It is part and parcel of his story. Imagine if you saw a film about the life of Jesus. How much sense would it make if you took out all the grit and all the pain and you took out his death? It wouldn't make any sense. Paul speaks again and again of sharing or participating in the sufferings of Jesus as a privilege, a necessary path for every Christian. Now, this doesn't mean you're a masochist. Yay, suffering, awesome, I can't wait. It doesn't mean that, okay? It just means that our pain is reframed and recast entirely. Jesus did this worse for me? Yes. The hope I find is that suffering gives us a more grateful heart. Actually, a more tender heart. Did you know that suffering is intended to make you more tender, not hard? I think people tend to go one of those two directions with suffering. They either become very hard and bitter and angry, where there's something in them that yields to sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and they become soft and tender-hearted. When someone participates in the sufferings of Jesus actively, as Paul's talking about right here, um, I think you can see it. You talk to him for a little bit. I think you can see it in their face. I think you see it in their eyes, hear in their story. They share fellowship with him. It's part of the knowing of Jesus. 
They've shared the bread of affliction with him. They understand it. I find that these weathered saints tend to have more joy, which is paradoxical, but it's part of the promise of the gospel. And sharing in his sufferings and death, they know the power of his resurrection because they've stayed the course. Let me give you another Holy Week example. I'm going to keep at these. <laughs> um, you can't really leap from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. You just can't do it. You can't skip over Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. And go, ah, it's a little too dark for me. I don't want to do that. If you do, Easter won't mean very much to you. I promise you. The road to Easter is via the cross, via suffering. Uh, to put an end cap on this, I'll allow Spurgeon to do that. He says, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Amen to that. The Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. The path that Jesus walks here, in verses 10 and 11, Paul wants to walk too. That's how you get to know Jesus. You follow in his footsteps. You follow the rabbi. Next week in Holy Week, we're going to begin a very intimate journey with Jesus. We'll do that very thing. We're going to walk alongside him. We're going to follow alongside him. We're going to fellowship with him. We're going to participate in his sufferings and see his resurrection and know his power. Okay? To know the power of his resurrection is to be acquainted with the sacrament of suffering. Okay? Uh, finishing up with verses 12 to 14. Now, I love the honesty of this. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Hey, hey, people. Uh, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus now, folks, there's a big, I think, a big now and not yet component here. These things are true now. Uh, Paul's being, Paul is saved and being sanctified. We're saved and we're being sanctified. Uh, but they're not fully true yet in the sense of I'm not fully sanctified. I'm not perfect. Uh, my family can attest to that. Uh, we're incomplete. We're in process now. But one day we will be complete at the day of consummation at Jesus' return. Let me give you a couple quotes to kind of drive these points home. Uh, the believer lives within the tension of salvation begun now, but not yet final until the parousia, the coming of Jesus. No perfection this side of the Jordan, and there will always be room for progress while the church is God's pilgrim people. Or, if you prefer poetry, Browning says, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? Paul looks at this and says, Look, folks, not that I've arrived and I've mastered all this. Okay, I haven't finished the race, but I'm heading in the right direction, and that's what counts. The way Paul speaks of it here, pressing on towards the goal, means to pursue or chase like a runner in a race. He loves that metaphor, doesn't he? Being a runner in a race. The goal being to pursue and to overtake, to chase and to capture. I haven't finished the race, but I'm headed in the right direction. I love that part about the upward call of heaven that happens at the end of 14. And he's running with all that he has. So he's not just loping along. I'll just ride this out. He's sprinting. He's straining. He's leaning towards the finish. You ever watch the Olympic matches when it's close? What do they do? Those leans, they almost look like they're going to fall over. That's the kind of running Paul's talking about. And heaven is pulling him along, moving him from strength to strength, like a tractor beam, as he's running hard, eyes on the prize. And I love this line about forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. I have to wonder if he's riffing off of Isaiah 43, 18, and 19 here, which you just heard in the Old Testament reading about leaving Egypt and 
going to the promised land via the desert and wilderness. And here's what it says. I'm going to refresh your memory. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead. It is a question, again, of what defines you. Does Egypt define you, your old life, the slavery before you knew Jesus? Or is it the promised land, the new creation in Christ, being new in Christ? Think of all that Jesus has done for us. Think again on the prodigal son, the younger son who's clothed as one who now belongs in the father's house. I want my heart and my life to match that. I want my heart and my life to match that. There's a certain way that God the Father sees that son, and I want my life to conform to that picture. Okay, We can get that skewed, can't we? No, I'm not good enough. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a worm. I'm trash. I'm this, I'm this, I'm that. And God is saying, no, I love you. I care for you deeply. I've gifted you with these things. I've given you these things. You have a new identity. Live into that. I want, to conform, I want to conform to that picture, right? I can't earn it. I can't pay God back for it. But I can run hard. I can be an active participant in my spiritual life, empowered and motivated by the gratitude of grace. That's the kind of picture I think Paul's painting for us here. This is why and how we run the race set before us. Okay, let's begin to wrap things up. Let's begin to kind of gather things together here. Paul is bringing us back to Jesus at every turn. and I love this. So Christocentric and so good for Lent. When we're talking about shedding the old man, living into the new, when we're talking about throwing off the old, when we're talking about putting on the new, when we're talking about giving up and emptying our hands of the old things of death in order to have our hands filled with new life and the things of resurrection, the old life and the new. What defines us? I think that is the key question here. What defines us, the old life or the new? The issue is lordship, where we live from our old ways, valuing them, prizing them. Now, Paul once had pride in his old life too, right? He's honest about that here in this passage. The places where you live from the old ways, those are the areas and the places where Jesus isn't on the balance sheet of your life. And I'm going to end that yet. <laughs> okay? Yet. There's hope. Always hope. So what defines you? What defines you? Is it your old life? Your life before you were rescued by Jesus? Whatever that looked like, whatever past sins you had, whatever. I mean, that can look any number of ways. Does that define you? Or does your new identity in Jesus, the unassailable fact that you are in Christ and you are a new creation in Jesus, which defines you more, the old or the new? Uh, C.S. Lewis always paints a good picture for us. Uh, he paints a really great picture in The Weight of Glory, talking about old ways and new identity. He doesn't label it that way. I do. But let me read it to you or paraphrase it for you. He says, we're like children making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. How about that? Old ways, new identity. What old ways are you leaning upon? What old ways? Isn't it time to move out of the slum and to stop eating mud pies? That's the old life, man. That is the old life. A holiday by the sea awaits. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. In this final Sunday of Lent, I want to invite you to look at the balance sheet of your life and ask God what he sees. Jesus, what do you see? Do the old ways still constrain and enslave you? Are you still holding on to them in some way? They still have a hold of you? 
Or have you been set free in Christ Jesus, i.e., as Paul has, let go of everything, counted it as a loss as to knowing Jesus? What defines you? Your old ways or the new identity in Jesus? Isn't it time to let go of the old and to embrace the new? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.